You know, it seems like every couple of years, something big happens, some big event that impacts uh, our entire faith family, uh, much like Hurricane Irma. And, uh, and what I mean by impacts everybody, I, I recognize that some are impacted more than others, but everybody seems to be going through, at least in part, kind of the same situation, experiencing some of the same things. And as a pastor here at Mercy Hill, I feel like one of my responsibilities and desires is to try to lead us through those things, maybe lead us into them and try to prepare then, and then help us to be able to come out of those things as well as difficult as they may be. And I can't think of a, a better way to be able to do that than through the preaching of God's Word. And, and as many of you know, if you've been here for any period of time, you know that we often work through books of the Bible. And right now we're in a series in, in 1 Timothy. And uh, the next passage up is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And, and I got to tell you, I have been amazed how many times throughout the years that I've been here, how, how, how many times I don't even have to pick a different passage of Scripture when these events happen because it's, it's amazing how almost every time that Scripture that we're already in almost lines up perfectly up with what the church is going through. And people oftentimes will go, wow, that's amazing. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 is not one of those passages, all right? It has nothing to do. I was excited to be able to look at it. In fact, the passage mentions slavery. It mentions miserable bosses. It mentions Christians' responsibility in the workplace. And I just have this sneaking suspicion that nobody over the last seven to ten days were thinking about those things. Instead, what's been on the hearts and the minds of all of us is this storm. We've been thinking about, is it going to come? Is it not going to come? Is it going to hit us? Is it not going to hit us? Uh, maybe you're the same. Uh, hey, get out of town. Okay, we're going to get out of town. We leave town, and wherever we go, it seems like the hurricane was following us, right? And so we end up back here, and so we can't make up our minds. Then we're wondering, what kind of damage is going to be done the next day? What's going to happen with all of this? And so it's been on the hearts and the minds of everyone. So instead of, of trying to force something this morning in our study of 1 Timothy, um, and, you know, a, a square peg in a round hole, I figured that we would just kind of go to where our hearts are on the storm. So I'm going to look at a passage. We want to look at a passage this morning in Mark chapter 4, a passage that all of you are immensely familiar with. It's the story of Jesus, the story of his disciples, and the stilling of the storm. Here's a group of men, specifically of his disciples, who understood what it means to feel hopeless, feel hopeless in the midst of a storm. So what I want to do this morning in a way of encouragement before we take of the Lord's Supper together, and I really want to take the Lord's Supper together because once again, there's something about coming together and just focusing on what truly matters and what truly our focus ought to be that is so helpful and encouraging to me. But before we do that, we want to look at three lessons to be learned from a storm. Three lessons to be learned from a storm. First of all, we see a model to follow. We see a model to follow. Look at verse 35, if you will. Follow along with me. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So a little context for you. Jesus had been preaching all day to the masses. 
In fact, there was such a large group of people that Jesus was up against the Sea of Galilee, and he had to get into a small fishing boat and kind of push out in order to be able to make sure that he could speak to the, to the, long congr- the large congregation that was there. And he preached through the remainder of the day. And at the end of the day, he tells his disciples, hey, listen, let's leave. Let's cross the Sea of Galilee and let's go to the other side. But as they're going to the other side, they experience this tremendous storm, uh, which wouldn't have been unique at all for uh, that particular time. In fact, I've been there and I've seen actually one of these storms kind of pop up out of nowhere. And the reason for that is because of its geography. Uh, the, the, the Sea of Galilee it's, itself rests 700 feet below sea level, and there's a mountain, Mount uh, Hermon, that is actually about, about 30 miles away to the north, and cold air begins to trickle down and begins to work through almost like a funnel through a, a series of valleys, and when that cold air hits the warm, rising uh, air of that sea, all of a sudden, these really quick, really violent storms begin to stir up. Well, this is what Jesus' disciples were in the midst of. This is what they're ultimately facing. It comes out of nowhere, and they find themselves being completely helpless, which is pretty amazing seeing that some of these guys are professional fishermen. Now, understand, these are, this isn't a huge boat. It's about 26 feet long, about seven feet wide, maybe about four, uh, feet, uh, four feet high, but, but they're in it, and they are beyond beyond help. They, they, they can't do anything, and the water is beginning to fill up. Now, I don't know a whole lot about boats. This uh, Just a week ago, when we're in Cordial, there's nothing to do in Cordial as you're waiting for a hurricane. So we rented a boat, and it scared me lifeless. Why? Because my wife's like, well, you could do this. I mean, you've done all kinds. You've gone around the world. And I'm like, but I've never driven a boat. All right? And I'm scared to death. I'm like, what do I do? All these people are looking. Why do people gather at docks, right, for you to take off and to come back? Taking off fun. I'm scared to come back. And, and so these guys are professional. With this boat, they know. But I don't know a lot about boats, but I do know this. I think the premise is to put the boat in, in the water, but don't have the water come in the boat. Isn't that correct? Right? But this water is billowing over. The seas are so great. It's filling up. They're beginning to sink. And to make it even worse, yes, Jesus is there is great, but he's sleeping in the stern. Now, for you non-boating people, that means the back of the boat. I knew that because I Googled it, all right? And so in, in, in the back of the boat, by the way, boat people, why not write, say, front, back, right, or left? Oh, you're so smart with all your big terms, all right, and everything. But anyway, they're in the back of the boat. Jesus is sleeping. And so when you're reading the word, you've got to ask yourself, why, right? Why is he sleeping? How is he sleeping? That's what I want to know. That's what the author wants us to know from at least this portion of the text. So first of all, why is he sleeping? Well, first of all, because he's exhausted. He preached all day. Uh, we've, uh, I've learned through, through uh, preaching, different preaching classes and studies and things like that, that 30 minutes of really solid, heartfelt preaching is equivalent to eight days, manu- or eight days, eight hours of manual labor, strenuous labor. So it can be exhausting. And I know some of you judgmental people, yeah, you only do it once a week. Yeah, okay, shut up. Okay, so I love you. That's, sorry, that's the hurricane coming out of me. Uh, it's not out yet. And so uh, I get that. But Jesus has been doing this all day long. It's like him working nonstop for two weeks, and he is physically, mentally, and spiritually exhausted. As soon as he gets into that boat, he puts his head down on that cushion in the back of the boat, and he lays down, he falls asleep. So that's the why he's sleeping. But the question is how? How is he sleeping through the midst of all of this? Because you and I know 
that you can be completely physically exhausted but still struggle with going to sleep. And when we do that, it's because our minds won't shut off. It's because we're concerned. It's because we're worried. It's because we have all these problems that we're ultimately fretting about. But what does Jesus do? He's exhausted. He is sleeping. And he, he doesn't appear to have a care in the world. Why is this? Here's why. When you have full trust in the Father, then even in the most dangerous, fear-provoking circumstances, rest can be found. Rest can be found. Even in the most difficult, unsure times of life. Now, you sit there and say, well, how do we understand that? Well, I just mentioned the fact that Jesus had been preaching for, uh, for all day, but what I didn't mention is what he was preaching. Jesus had been preaching a series of parables, which was about what the kingdom of God was like, what it meant to be a part of the kingdom of God. In verses 26 through 29, there's a very important parable that he teaches there. He says, listen, the kingdom of God is like this. It's kind of like a farmer who goes out and he plants, and he plants all day long. And then at the end of the day, when it comes night, he goes to sleep. Now, the whole purpose of this was to explain what Jesus was like, what his role was, and also what the role of you and I are in God's whole redemptive plan for mankind. What is it? Obviously, Jesus is a little bit different, but Jesus was called to come and preach the gospel. In the book of Luke, chapter 4, verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. So what we have here is Jesus literally practicing what he just got done preaching. He said, hey, the role, my role is to preach and then to rest. Guess what he did? He preached all day and now he is resting in the security and the full trust of his father. He's constantly about the will of God. Just, I'm going to do the will of God. I'm going to do what the father has called me to be able to do. And what happens to the person who sits there and says, I'm going to allow you to, I'm going to do everything for you. The whole idea is do God's business and then allow God to look after everything else. That's the premise that's ultimately being set. You know, one of the things I love about being a Christian is knowing why I'm here. I don't mean here at this particular moment. I mean just here on earth. You know how many people are walking around going, I don't know why I exist. Why am I here? There's no meaning in life. And they sit there and they go, you know, it's kind of like you just kind of peel back different layers. I'm trying to find who I am until they find out that they're nothing but an onion, right? Nothing but layers, right? And they're unwrapping it all. And they're like, I don't know why I'm here. What a horrible way to live. The believer in Jesus Christ knows exactly why they are here. They are here to come to know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior and to make him known, yes? To be able to know him, to know his word, to be able to live out the truth and get this, to share the gospel with as many people as we possibly can and of those that God extends the grace and mercy to who he saves to show them how to live out this Christian life before the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know very clearly why we are here. And what God is saying is, hey, listen, you as my people don't need to sit up twirling your fingers and, and writhing your, your hands and doing all these other kinds of things, wringing your hands. You don't need to do any of that. Why? Because I am a God who is in control. You take care of my business and I'll take care of yours. That's the principle that we found within this particular passage. Now, that doesn't mean, and I love this because sometimes I will, I'm struggling through a message and I'll, and I'll say something to one of my kids. And so, so understand they've been filtered through children before I preach them to you. All right, so doesn't that make you feel better? And so sometimes I'm like, is this good? And as soon as I got to that point, and, and here's one of the things I said, as I said, so here's the truth or the reality of a believer in Jesus Christ who is submitted to the will of God is that they, they 
cannot be broken. They cannot be destroyed. They are literally indestructible as long as what? As God has a plan for their life here on earth, nothing ultimately can touch them. No hurricane, no anything else. You get that, right? So the immediate question is, and one of my children asked me this question, yeah, but that doesn't mean we can go out and be stupid, right? All right? I'll give you a hint who said that. This gentleman down here, guy, right? That sounds like a guy, right? Yeah, but it doesn't mean we can't be, go out and be stupid. Yes, so let me make sure I, we explain this. Because I don't want to be blamed next hurricane that comes around for some guy go, hey, preacher said we're indestructible. It's a cat five, no big deal. Picnic time, kids, right? And go out into the picnic. That's not wise. No, a part of God's sovereign plan for you is to use the la cabeza, right? To use your head, to use your brain, to use the wisdom of God. But what he's talking about here specifically is when you're beyond your own wisdom, when you're beyond your own ability, when you've done everything that you can ultimately do, and when things are out of control with you, when, things, when you find out that there's a medical condition, when you find out that you've been fired from a job, when you find out that a hurricane is coming, I'm talking about stuff you can do nothing about. You know what the Bible says? Do his will and sit back and rest in him. Rest in him. Amen? Amen? First thing we need to do is this. Scriptures tell us that we, there's a model for us to follow. Secondly, there's a feeling for us to avoid. Feeling for us to, to uh, avoid. Look at verse 38. It says, And they woke him and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, what's interesting is this story is found not only in the book of Mark, but it's also found in the parallel passages of, of Matthew and Luke as well. And for the most part, the stories are the same, except for the responses of the disciples and the recording of their response. It's a little bit different. For example, in Matthew, he says the response was, save us, Lord, we are perishing. In Luke, he records, master, master, we are perishing. Those are different responses to this one in Mark. They seem to be more loving. They seem to be almost as though they know that Jesus, who he is, they identify who he is, they know he has the power, and they know that he's willing to be able to help them. This response by Mark, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, seems to be completely different. In fact, it's accusatory. And I don't know if you've really kind of picked up on that, but it's accusatory, almost questioning, because this is happening, do you love us? Apparently, you don't love us. Now, what's the difference between what well, we understand, Matthew, Luke, and, and uh, Mark, would have all had different sources that they would have been using of this particular event as they were penning these particular things. And guess what? We know who, for the most part, who was the source of retelling this story to Mark as he penned it. It was none other than Peter. Remember Peter, the guy that would often say things that later he would ultimately regret? Remember the guy that seems to always want to stick his foot inside of his mouth? Same Peter, right? I mean, this is the guy who was rebuked by Jesus himself. The guy who told Jesus, Jesus is like, hey, whole reason I'm here is to go and to be able to die. And Peter rebukes him and say, say it isn't true. And then he says, behind me, Satan, get thee behind me, Satan. He didn't want to be kept from what God had ultimately called him to do. Same Peter. And even though we're rough on Peter, I think that all of us here can identify at least a little bit with him in this. Can we not? Whether we actually verbalize it or not, there is a feeling sometimes when things are out of control that maybe we've blown it, maybe we've done something, maybe we haven't been doing everything that we need to be doing, and that maybe, maybe just a little bit, a little bit of God's love for us is diminished just a little. 
And that can really happen when you really begin to experience pain, especially maybe when some of those who are around you, your neighbors, are not experiencing the same thing that you are. You know, you can be in a community, and sometimes you can sit there, and, 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 and maybe your house gets wiped out, but your neighbor's doesn't. It's easy for us to be able to sit there. The, the temptation is to be able to sit back and go, why doesn't God love me? Or is he angry with me? Or did I ultimately do something wrong? And the point is so simple, but it's so vital, and it's this. God loves you perfectly and completely and is incapable of loving you any less than a maximum propensity of his love. He loves you fully. He doesn't love you more because you escaped damage from the hurricane, and he doesn't love you any less because things have been wiped out or your house has ultimately been flooded. He loves us perfectly, but it's a feeling we have to guard against. When things begin to go wrong, when problems begin to happen, it, it's kind of like I, I've counseled, especially as a youth pastor, would counsel uh, so, some young ladies from time to time that would deal with anorexia. And here would be this young, beautiful young lady who is starving herself to death, and, 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 and she, she's afraid of getting fat, but oftentimes in their mind, she actually viewed herself as being fat. And everybody's sitting around going, bro, what's... Well, not bro, that would be weird. It would be like, young lady, what, what are you talking about? This is, you, you're beautiful and you're wonderful. You're, you're, not, you're not fat, you're not anything. In fact, you're the opposite way. You need to be able to eat. What's wrong with you? None of it is reality. All of it is a feeling. And here's what I want you to understand. Every time you begin to feel for one second, for one moment, whatever trouble you're in, that you begin to sense a lack of love or a diminishing of God's love towards you because of the difficulty of your responsibility, that is completely off base and untrue. That kind of emotion, you need to push out the door and have nothing to do with it. So there are two things that we need to do. We need to, there's a model to follow. There's a feeling to avoid. And here's the third and most important. There's a principle to embrace There's a principle to embrace. Look at verse 39. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So Jesus gives two speeches here. The first speech is to nature. So he looks out over to the wind and the waves and the storm, and he says, peace, be still. And the Bible says he rebukes, which means there was a serious talking to, serious scolding to the wind, right? And what does the wind do? It does what all creation does. It does exactly what its creator tells it to do, all right? And so it completely comes to a calm. And what's amazing is even the seas are calm, not just the wind, but the seas and the rains and everything is completely smooth, which is amazing. Because think about it here. Once the hurricane comes through, what do you see at the beach the very next day? All, the crazy, all you crazy surfers, right, out there. Why? Because the waves are huge. With Jesus, no surf for you, all right? Jesus says, be still. They're like, okay, what about the next day? No, right now, be still. And it's all still. So he gives a scolding to the creation. It listens fully. And then he turns, and then he begins to direct his teaching and his correction now to his disciples, but this is no scolding. This is no rebuke. This is, this is a loving, heartfelt correction of his disciples' warped thinking. Jesus understands. He asks the question. He says, why are you afraid? You know, and this is one of those kind of like the elephant in the room type things, right? Uh, why are you afraid? If I was there, I'd be like, well, it's kind of this huge storm and was kind of about to die and you're sleeping. So, you know, there it is, right? 
But what Jesus is getting at, it's not like he, he's oblivious to what their fear is. He knows that's a surface fear. But he knows the fear is going back to that second point we just mentioned, is that at this particular point, they are doubting God's love for them. They think their difficulty stems directly because of it. See, for a lot of people, they can't put the two and two together. They can't see, and it's hard for them to believe in a God that allows or even orchestrates great difficulties, but that's in our lives because if he was loving, he would take those away, but that's not the picture that the Bible teaches us. All the way through the Word of God, it teaches us that Jesus does indeed us love us more than we can ever imagine and allows even and even orchestrates difficult things to happen in our life for our good. Why? Because we so desperately need difficulties. We need it. We don't think we do, but we do. The Bible says all over the place, Peter says, hey man, you're going to go through great difficulties. In fact, why do you act surprised when these difficulties come upon you as though some strange thing has taken you, right? Jesus says, hey, listen, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute you, they shall likewise persecute me. Jesus says of, of Paul, the greatest Christian that ever lived, hey, I will show him the many sufferings he must endure for my name's sake. There's all of this. Why is suffering a part of it? Why are difficult? Why do we need them as much as we say we don't need this? How many, something happens, I just don't need this right now. Jesus says, you do, you do. What reason why? Let me just draw your attention to James 1, 2 through 3. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, your faith must be tested. Must be tested. Why? Because it produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason we need difficulties is because they drive us to Jesus. You know, the, the, the false conception is, man, when everything's good, I'm walking close to God. I love him wholeheartedly. I love him with a pure love. The truth is, let's really be honest, it's almost always opposite the truth. That when things are really going well, instead of when things are coming in and the job is good and the money is good and the kids are healthy, you know what we end up doing with most of that stuff? We mostly usually end up worshiping it as idols in our life rather than thanking God for the things that are good inside of our life. So God says to us, he says, you naturally have this flesh for idolatry. I have given you a new heart and I not want you for you, but the way to be able to wean you off these things is allow difficulty to become through your life. To allow these difficult problems to be able to happen in your life. Why does it do it? Because it helps us to rely on him. It helps us to draw back to him. It helps us to, to expose the idols in our life. It, 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 it emboldens and ignites our passions for Jesus once again. I saw this through the storm, okay? I was like the biggest wimp ever, okay? We don't know what that thing was going to do, right? I mean, when people are like, it's the biggest hurricane ever, right? It's 1,900 miles across. You can't escape it in America. And you're like, really? You know, and you're like, what? You know, and it's coming. And most people are saying it's going to be wiped out and everything's going to be flooded. And our house is in a flood zone. I, don't, I still don't even understand all that. Mandatory evacuation. Ooh, this must be big, right? And so we skedaddled. And so when we're driving away, leaving the house, we're kind of like, you know, I don't even do this. I don't even know how to do it, but we're doing this. And like, God bless you. See you back. I'm literally, even somebody in our, somebody in our uh, church, they, they own a, a, a company that does glass. 
I'm, I'm like trying to get their number to go, hey, can you put my name on the top of the list so I can make sure that I, okay, selfishness, I know. I didn't, I put your name too. Liar. And uh, so it got there. So I'm just thinking this and I'm like, all right, say bye to, say bye to the house, guys, because when we come back, house may not be there. All right. My wife's like, praise God. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, see, that's why I need to stick to my notes, because it, it just gets me in trouble. And so, so what happens, though, is we come back, and, you know, we go through the storm, and we come out the next day. I personally slept all through the storm, not because I'm spiritual. I was just tired. And so I, I get inside the house, and, and, and everything's fine. And go out, and nothing that raking, like, you know, like, a, you know, an hour or two doesn't take care of. But we lost power. We lost power. And, uh, and we lost power, and, and, and I was grateful for a couple moments, but when we lost power, the evil might begin to come out, right? It's, it's hot, it's, it's nasty, it's like you're constantly yelling at the kids, you're like, don't touch me, but I'm hugging you, shut up, don't touch me, it's hot, just stay your distance, everything is disgusting, right? And so then you begin to, see, you're laughing because you are this person, right? And then I found myself, I found myself sitting there being angry with some of you, not you personally, but if you lived in Amelia Walk, I hated you because you lived like a half a mile from my house and you had electricity. I did not have electricity. And I found myself sitting there going, it's just a half a mile. And my wife's like, quit driving down there. And I keep driving back and forth. It's like, look, it's just a, it's just a half mile. It's a half mile. Their light's working. Our life's not working. What's the problem? We're a half mile away and we're angry. And then we find out from one of our neighbors, the reason our power's not on is because a lady down at the cul-de-sac in the very end, one of the trees that were in her yard and up falling over onto the line, caught fire. The fire people had to come over, and they couldn't put our power on because of her tree. I was, uh, uh, you know, the thoughts are, get the tree off the line, man, right? I'm dying here. It's hot and sweaty, and, and everything's reversed. There's cold water, and there's hot air. Switch those. That's how I like it. And you're so angry, and, and everything begins to come. And, and, and I talked just kind of with my son a little bit after that. Before the power came on, I promise, I just sat there and I said, you know what, this whole thing teaches me. It's only been 24 hours. Some of you are like, yeah, we just got electric. Some people don't have electric. But I'm talking about just within 24 hours, I sat there and go, God, I know that you are sufficient, but I don't know that you are sufficient. That I would just get so disgruntled and angry or not, just, just a little bit of comfort being taken away. What in the world is going on? And I'm telling you, without that difficulty, I would just continue to worship my hot water, worship my cold air, and most of the time wouldn't even know that I'm even doing it without God sitting there going, you need difficulties, and I love you enough to allow you to go through it as hard as it Maybe. So there are three things that we need to do learning from a storm. First of all, there's a model for us to follow. Let's be about God's business. Wonderful opportunity to be able to share the gospel. I got people talking to me that never talked to me in my community. Have you ever seen that? People stopping by and I'm like, whoa, I, did, I, I thought you hated me. And they're like, how'd y'all fare? And we're like, pretty good. You know, how, how about you? Well, opportunity to share the gospel, right? And when, it, when it's all over, we're, we're cleaning up, we're talking with people, they're coming together. Great time. Dude. People are open for the gospel. You take care of the gospel, you let God take care of everything else. He's sovereign in all else. Number two, a feeling to avoid. 
Do you not feel for one moment if you were blasted by these things or if you're going through any incredible difficult times that you are no less loved by God? He loves you fully and completely. In fact, he loves you enough to see you hurt, to allow you to hurt temporally in order to be able to bring you to the point of being just like his son, Jesus Christ. It's got to weigh heavy on the heart. Have you ever had a child where you have to let them make decisions, you have to see them go through pain, and you have to let them do it because you know it's the very best for them? God loves us with that perfect type of love. And finally, a principle to embrace, we need it. As much as we don't want it, and I don't sit there and go, hey, give me troubles. No, we're not, we're not, we're not masochists, but we so desperately need it for us to become more like him, to know him, to ignite our passions for him, to draw us back to him, to expose the idols and reject those inside of our life. You know what I love about this? And Nick, you can come at this time. What I love about this is, did you notice how many similarities there are between this story and the Old Testament story of Jonah? Have you drawn the correlations before those? I mean, incredible similarities. Remember Jonah, right? Go, Jonah. Mm-hmm. No, okay, you don't know that song. All right, and so, so, and that's why Nick sings. And so, um, so, so he tells him to go, cry out against Nineveh, tell him to repent, tell him to turn, and, and they're going, he, they're doing all this, and he doesn't, where, where does he end up? He ends up on a ship with the storm that's coming. So we see all these similarities between the two. Jesus and Jonah were on the boat, both go to sleep. There is a severe storm that arises. The men on the boat all fear for their lives. Both Jesus and Jonas are awake, Jonah are awakened. In both stories, there's a divine intervention in a calm sea. And both stories end with the sailors on both ships in fear of God. Now, one of the differences is how that sea is ultimately brought to be stilled. And the difference is, is that Jonah is actually thrown in, and Jesus just speaks, and they are still. But what we have to understand is Jesus viewed Jonah as a picture of what he would ultimately do. See, there was a greater storm than any storm that could be whipped up by wind or by water or by waves. And it's the storm of the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God in his judgment against undeserving sinners those that would rebel against God and turn against God. And what we find through the scriptures is Jesus says, he says, there is one greater than Jonah. In saying that, what Jesus was saying that was like Jonah would come a storm, but that storm would not be of water, would not be, it would threaten all of mankind, the righteous judgment of God towards sinners. That storm, no one could ultimately escape or survive unless... Jesus Christ himself was willing, just like Jonah, to allow himself to be thrown into the full force of the wrath of God on our behalf. And that's exactly what he did. If, you, if, if, if he loved you so to offer himself, if he loved you so much to offer himself up to save you from the greatest storm, how much more can we trust him in the smaller storms that we face every day? Let's pray.